Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Westwood One presents The Polsters. The Polsters. And now, Margie and Kristen. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So welcome back from the three-day weekend. I didn't have a staycation, although we are going to talk about staycations later. We went to the Eastern Shore, which was pretty fun. Did you uh, – We had crabs. We saw oh, a festival. Fun. We saw we went to Chestertown where they do like a reenactment of something that didn't happen in Chestertown. <laughs> so the, Wait, what? <laughs> they do some sort of like Revolutionary War thing that okay. didn't happen there. Um, but you know, it's it's a festival. Lots of people go to it, and we went with enough families who all had old enough children that I could read the paper and they could watch safely watch Beckett who's now old enough to be watched by a, an entire gaggle of tween girls. Oh, nice. Which he really loved. So I'm guessing that was a lot of fun. Yeah. So he learned to say the phrase, I want ice cream. I'm oh. scared of dogs. And to, you know, play baseball, sort of. Hey, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, it was good. So it was good. I did not do anything quite so exciting. Um, I spent... Spent some time at home trying to do some home improvement projects on my staycation. Mm. Uh, we're bringing up staycations, by the way, because that's going to be our our poll at the end of the show today. It's summer. It's too hot. This is Wednesday, by the way. It's too hot already to sit outside for lunch. Oh, see, I'm very excited about the heat because I am partially – I'm trying to grow a bunch of peppers in my backyard and mm. they need – crazy heat in order to ripen. And so this like Seattle-esque weather we have had the last month right. is not – They need just, like southwest They just need weather. anything hot. Yeah. They need hot. So I'm like – I'm hoping I'll go home today and like they'll have grown a foot because it's a million degrees out. Um, well, you know what? Maybe in a couple years it will be that hot for you to grow those peppers all year round. <laughs> that was an excellent transition, Margie. So let's get into this week's show. April in Paris. The Paris Accords. Donald Trump may not be staying in them. Also may not be continuing with the same level of commitment to NATO. We'll talk about Trump abroad and at home with polling on Trump's budget. Ross Douthat, the New York Times in-house uh, right-winger, uh, he's been pushing 
the right to look at the 25th Amendment as a way to remove Trump from office very controversially. But we'll look at polling. Do Republicans agree that Donald Trump should be removed? Uh, Then the UK elections are coming up. Will British pollsters get it right this time? And are we on Ed Miliband's Christmas card list? Apparently, no. And finally, we'll talk about those staycations and what the polls say about where people want to staycation the most. Right. You may be surprised or maybe not. Um, But first, our poll of the week. So there are a couple polls about the military um, and veterans, which is the real reason behind Memorial Day, not simply about – Going to the shore, barbecuing. Um, And so we have something from Gallup and something from Pew, always our go-to for such things. And incredible uh, similarity across all of the branches of the military, almost no difference whatsoever in the favorability ratings with majorities rating all branches um, uh, very favorably. Although – not surprisingly, some party differences in the strength, the intensity of those opinions with Republicans overwhelmingly, two-thirds to three-fourths being favorable, Democrats more – very favorable, excuse me, and Democrats being more like mid, mid-40s. mid Yeah, you've favorable. got 70% of Republicans who have a very favorable view of the army compared to only 38% of Democrats. Uh, for the Navy, that split is also just is very is huge. Seventy four percent of Republicans with a very favorable opinion of the Navy uh, compared to only thirty nine percent of Democrats. And hashtag the selfie vote. Big differences by age where older Americans much more likely to say that they have a very favorable opinion of all of the branches of the armed forces, whereas for 18 to 34 year olds, that very favorable number um, is below half and it's uh, it's highest is among Marines at 44 percent. Yeah. No, these numbers remind me of my grandpa. Who's, Not among Marines, by the way. Yes, of, of Marines. Yes, Sorry. Yes. Of, Important distinction. Yes. Yes. So these numbers remind me of my grandpa who's no longer with us but was in the military and he used to tell – and he's from Florida where he lived in Florida for a good chunk of his life and was a solid Democrat, probably would be bummed about some of these numbers among Democrats um, and had this tank on his – like – I. I don't know. It was a definitely like a grandpa car. I don't remember exactly which grandpa car from the 80s it was. But one of the three or four you think of, that's what it was. And like gold, right? And then he had this <laughs> tank on his dashboard and told this very dramatic military story that I couldn't follow because I was like five or six. And he like never wanted to go on to Europe on vacation, you know, for the rest of his life, no matter, you know. Because Europe is where bad things happen. Yeah, he's, like, and- oh, he's like, don't like Europe. And his wife would be like, no, it's lovely now. Like it's not like that anymore. It's like I'm never going. So, um, so I when I think of that, when I think look at these numbers, I think of my grandpa um, from one of the fabulous places to do a staycation. Also, would be in this 55 and older, very favorable toward the military group. Uh, and then we take a look at some Pew Research Center data about uh, U.S. veterans and. Uh, what their partisan makeup is, what their demographic makeup is, um, and how Donald Trump's job approval fares among veterans versus the general public. So U.S. veterans are much more likely to be male than the general public. 92% of veterans um, are male, 8% female. Um, Much more likely to be an older group. Um, Almost half of all veterans in the U.S. are 65 and up. Um, And so, you know, as a result of being an older group, also unsurprising that it's a group that's much more white than the average population. 78% of veterans are white. Um, And there – but the college education mix is actually not so different from – 
uh, the overall, that you wind up with about the same percentage of veterans as adults overall that have college degrees um, and slightly more veterans that have at least some college. And I wonder if that has to do with like the GI Bill and things like that. Right. It could be. I, you know, it's also interesting. I mean, the, when you look at some of these data and it says Trump is has higher job approval ratings among veterans, which he does. Um, he has a 54 percent approval rating with veterans, 39 percent with adults overall. But how much of that is coming because they're older, they're just overwhelmingly male, they're disproportionately white as opposed to being veterans? So these data don't actually give us the answer to that. But what I found interesting was that veterans are not really that overwhelmingly Republican compared to voters overall. 29 percent of veterans are Republican compared to 25 percent overall. They are less likely to be Democratic, 20 percent versus 32 percent. But it's not like as skewed as gender and age are if you look at the demo break. Oh, yes. 60 percent of veterans who are younger under the age of 50 identify as independents or something else, which is just an enormous group of people. Yeah. So we don't know if what's the causality here, if it's some demographic breakout or if it's something about being a veteran specifically that causes Trump's ratings to be higher. But definitely when you look at that, make sure you're looking at the demographic breakouts, which Pew helpfully gives us in all of its generosity to the world. So speaking of Trump's job approval uh, this week, it it, in the aggregate has held fairly stable-ish. Um, after after having not such a great week last week. Um, but there there are different polls that tell dramatically opposing stories on this front, right? They I, I believe it was was it Gallup showed it going one way and uh was a morning consult showed it going the other or you I blame the orb. You blame the orb, not <laughs> Kofeve. What time is it? How far did we make it into the show? Ten minutes and forty eight seconds. Although well I that's when we started. I think recording. it's too early for the polling to really reflect the Kofefe impact yet. Uh, by the way, so I have to, I'm going on Tucker Carlson's show tonight for the segment at the end of the show where they were like, what are the most outrageous stories of the day? And I have been assigned Kofeve as the story to talk about. So I, I have had to look up the AP's pronunciation guide for Kofeve. <laughs> that is, a well, I think, I mean, according to the internet, which is always right, that is how you pronounce it. I'm, Kofeve. I mean, I, I'm really, I, I still want more Orb Twitter, honestly. Like, I really enjoyed Orb Twitter. I be, and we, I did a little Twitter poll, which is the best Twitter, and Kofefe was winning hands down better than Orb Twitter, and both of them were doing better than Young Pope Twitter or Pepsi Twitter. And, and I voted for Pepsi Twitter to be just counter- counterintuitive. Well, someone someone said, well, this is obviously just recency bias. What about United Twitter? I'm like, oh, right. I didn't include that. See, this is, we do talk about methodology, recency bias. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about, uh, we, we do talk about smart people things on this show sometimes. No, uh, the, right, when we're quoting a tweet. <laughs> when we're quoting a tweet. Uh, no, I, I feel like the Kofeve phenomenon was even more fun because I went to sleep not having looked at Twitter. So I just woke up and at, you know, 6.30 in the morning, look at my phone. And it's like that gif of the guy who walks – of Donald Glover walking into a room with a box of pizzas and the room is on fire. That's what it felt like to log into Twitter this morning. Like, 
Wait, hang on. What, what is everybody tweeting about? What is what is this C O V F E? Is this a word? Do I not? Is this in another language? Wait, right. Oh no, it has something to do with Donald Trump. Oh God. Oh God. Oh no. Right. <laughs> what I has mean, happened? <laughs> it's it's funny. People just you know like the kind of blank slate of it, like where you could just kind of graft on whatever joke to it because it's not like it's there's nothing really outrageous about it. I mean, compared to all the other things we could be talking about. It is a fairly benign tweet. Honestly, I'll add this to my presentation when I'm asked to do a briefing in the White House of what he could do to improve his poll numbers. More nonsensical gibberish <laughs> tweets. You know, Sean <laughs> Spicer no real words did in say it. today no that it words. was intentional and that the president knew what he meant. <sighs> That's it. I can't. Okay, even. sorry. We're, we're moving on. Kofeve <laughs> show just went went south real fast. <laughs> moving on. Um, I just can't even with that. That's just ridiculous. Like if you can't even just say this was a pocket tweet. I mean, I don't even know what to tell you. Um, so yeah, the stability in Trump's disapproval rating doesn't really mean that it hasn't been volatile. And now this is a thing we have more than one data point on, which is Morning Consult and Politico asking about impeachment. Which, you know, it seems kind of early to have multiple polls on this, but, you know, what do I know? But over, I mean, voters are divided. Um, 43% say yes, we should begin impeachment proceedings. 45% say no. Um, That's more than last week where 38% said they wanted to begin impeachment proceedings. And Incredibly, 15% of Republicans say we should begin impeachment proceedings. I don't even know what to make of it. So there's a column that came out a couple of weeks ago by Ross Douthat that was really controversial where he suggests that instead of like waiting around to discover that Donald Trump has done something that is like technically criminal and therefore you go through the normal impeachment process, that the 25th Amendment, which was put in place – uh, I, I'm going to mess this up if I say it was after Reagan. The The idea is that if you have a president who is unable to perform the duties of the office, the cabinet is able to sort of take a vote, kind of like a vote of – not a vote of no confidence. The idea is that you use it if the president is like incapacitated or something. And so then the cabinet can say, yeah, like the president's technically still alive but cannot continue to be the president. And so we need to remove him or her from office. So Ross's column was about like – we can use the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office because he's clearly unfit. And this caused like a massive firestorm, right, about is it is it actually technically conservative, temperamentally conservative to call for the removal of a duly elected president? And anyhow, so it caused this whole firestorm on the right. Perhaps these are your Ross Douthat Republicans. But then there is a follow-up question here that Morning Consult asks. And they say, of those who say, yes, Congress should begin to remove the president, they ask under on what grounds? A, should President Trump be removed because he has committed an impeachable offense? Or is it simply that he is unfit to serve and should be removed regardless of whether he has co- committed an impeachable offense? So that latter one is m- more of the the, the Douthat point of view that it's like rather than like, oh, we got to go find right. so the smoking, smoking gun. gun. Mm-hmm. Like it's just he sh- shouldn't be president anymore. So On this one, there are not – it does not appear to me in a quick read of this to be a big difference among those who say, yes, he should be removed, whether it should be about impeachable offenses or not. Uh, Most who say, yes, you should remove the president 
um, do not think that you should wait for an impeachable offense. Fifty four percent say he's proven unfit to serve and should be removed from office regardless of whether he has committed an impeachable offense or not. Again, this is just among those who do say, yes, Congress should begin impeachment proceedings. So that's 43 percent. So over half of the 43 percent says just get rid of many ways. And then 43 percent of the 43 percent says let's find that. We believe he's committed an offense, an impeachable offense. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that it's a majority of Democrats who say we should begin impeach- impeachment proceedings, say he's unfit to serve. Let's just you know do it regardless. A majority of independents and a plurality of Republicans. Now, these are smaller subgroups. There's only 100 Republicans in this particular who are asked this particular question. But, you know, of all the things to have bipartisan agreement on, this is quite something. Although it makes sense if you think about it in more detail, you know, if you think about it further where, you know, a lot of voters are like, I can't keep up with all these daily twists and turns of what's going on in the, you know. And Kofeve drives out Russia. Like what's happening with Right. Comey or the special prosecutor. Right. Exactly. And, and um, you know, and the, and the back channel and um, the, all the rest of it can be – and the conflict of interest and all of those stories. There's so much legal detail to it that I could see a lot of folks saying, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't need that. I, I can tell from the day-to-day onslaught of, of it all, not just the investigations but also the tweets and everything else that, you know, we, got, we have enough material here. So yeah. it, it doesn't surprise me that we see a majority um, say we should just go ahead regardless. He's unfit to serve. But I, I can also appreciate that that it is concerning as a thing to throw out and debate. And it is like insane that this is now – a question that we're tracking in May of <laughs> the first year. I mean, it just boggles my mind. So I guess there are going to be more of these questions. I don't think this is just going to be disappear as a thing, you know, within the next week. Um, but at any rate, so stay tuned. I'm sure it won't be the last time we talk about impeachment polling. Well, when we then sort of move into what is the stuff that the Trump administration is doing, both domestically and abroad. Um, the first big thing, president's budget has come out in recent weeks. And uh, the president's budget, of course, is more of a wish list. It's never – I mean when President Obama was around, his budget would get voted down in the Senate like 98 to 0 because it's just – it's like a, a thing that the president sends that Congress is then like, thank you. We'll take this under consideration. And you know, usually it, it does not become law, but it does sort of suggest this is what the president's priorities are. And of course, in Trump's budget, there were lots of big cuts, particularly to things like um, SSDI, uh, or there were, I believe there were some programs in terms of like Medicaid. Um, so Social Security and Medicare, not touched. President Trump has been a big, like, we're not touching those things. But there were lots of things, the State Department budget, um, EPA budget, et cetera, all got big cuts. So Pew Research Center has been asking people, if you were creating a federal budget, where would you increase and decrease spending? Now, I'll put on my Republican hat just for half a second and say, people love to say they'll increase spending on tons and tons and tons of stuff, especially when questions don't have any sort of sense of trade-offs, that if you just pose the question, would you increase or decrease funding, it sort of poses this like hypothetical unlimited pot of money. Right. You're not given $100 to spend. And so how would you allocate it? And so the Cato uh, Institute and um, Emily Eakins, who's a 
done a lot of research with them. It's a libertarian think tank. They will often pose this question with some of those trade-offs, like would you, what which of these things would you increase funding on even if it meant higher taxes to pay for it? And like that's I think a really another more interesting way to look at this. But here you do see that there are – this is still a wish list too representing the values that people have also. In the same way that the president's budget is. So in this case, it is very interesting then to see how for most Democrats, sort of unsurprisingly, not interested in cuts to most things. I think the most popular thing on here is cuts to the State Department and American embassies at 17 percent of Democrats and lean Democrats saying they'd be okay with it. Um, 13 percent of Democrats and lean Democrats saying they'd be okay with cutting assistance to needy in the world. But then for Republicans, that's 56 percent. Republicans are eager to cut foreign aid. But that's about it. Everything else – I think this is just a quibble. I think if that was changed from assistance to needy in the world to like alleviating global poverty – would you'd have a different thing than if you have foreign aid? I mean, I well, think this doesn't say foreign yeah. aid. I'll bet you if this said foreign aid, that Republican number would, would be, be higher. higher right? Yeah, numbers and are ugly. Assistance about to needy, aid. I think, is probably lower than if it had something about like alleviating world poverty or something. And like they, that. well, and what's interesting is they have this parallel construction where they have assistance to the needy in the world, and they have assistance to the needy in the U.S. And so the drop off for Republicans is 19 points in terms of people who say. We should not decrease assistance to the needy in the U.S., but we should decrease assistance to the needy abroad. Um, 36 percent of Republicans say decrease assistance to the needy in the U.S., only 6 percent of Democrats. So really, in terms of a hunger for decreasing federal spending, it's only a third of Republicans who say cutting funding for health care, cutting funding for environmental protection. Uh, Most of them actually I, I, I don't see on this chart how many say keep funding the same. But the idea that Republicans are out there like hungry for deep budget cuts is wrong, which this always I think comes as a surprise, surprise to people who have not been following the polling that like newsflash, most Republicans are not like strong fiscal conservatives. Like that's not – they don't wake up in the morning and are like, how are we going to make the budget balance? Right. And that is something that is often lost on uh, – right of center policy wonk types here in Washington. Right. And as I said, some of these questions are not, you know, they're not phrased in a way that would even, there is no messaging or explanation. So, I mean, you could get even fewer, I think with just a fewer, a few tweaks to these questions, Mm -hmm. you could get even fewer Republicans saying they're going to be open to some of these cuts. But what's interesting is that it is a real mismatch with what the president says his values and priorities are. And so what does that mean for Republicans in Congress? Do they feel the need to say, well, we support what the president's trying to do in some way if even Republicans are not supportive of some of these cuts? Or do they find themselves then kind of addressing warring factions? Yeah, well, I mean, and what's bizarre, too, is that it's Donald Trump's victory and takeover of the party that I think exposes so clearly the lack of like ideological simplicity uh, or, pardon me, ideological uh, consistent far-rightness of the party because Donald Trump did not run as a conservative at all and still won. Um, So normally you'd think it would be Donald Trump that would be pushing a budget that congressional Republicans would have to be like, oh, can we stomach that much spending? We really want to cut this even further. And yet instead, Trump sent like this very fiscally conservative budget to Congress. So it'd be very interesting. But then tweets that we should add money to health care, which – right. Anyway, which is also confusing. As confusing as Cofepe. We should fully fund Cofepe. <laughs> that would at least is. make more sense. Um, so 
simpler issues. <laughs> the international community and America's commitments abroad. Yay. <laughs> um, so – there was so there are a couple polls from the last couple of weeks that are relevant to some of the conversations we've been having in the wake of the president's um, first foreign visit or foreign trip, rather. Um, so first, Morning Consult and Politico asked, um, "Have what you've seen and heard? Do you think his first official foreign visit to foreign nations has done more to help or hurt America's relationships with other countries, or has it not made much of a difference?" People are pretty evenly divided. 35% say more to help. 32% say more to hurt. And a quarter say not made much difference. I mean, that's that's sad, right? Because, you know, this is a visit that just has a lot of pageantry and, you know, and and symbolism. And despite that, it's, you know, it's seen at best neutral. Yeah. Well, I know, but I also think that the White House, in thinking that the trip was a success, I mean, by the White House's own metrics, I can see how they would come to that conclusion, right? I mean, the, the, the Middle East portion of the trip, Trump has always said he's going to have better relationships with Israel than Obama did. I mean, they had a very sort of warm reception there. And, um, you know, Donald Trump has always said, we're, we need the NATO allies to do their part and we are going to make them pay more and things like that. And so I, I think you can say it was a bad trip because those are bad, bad goals and bad things for him to advance. But he did say what he's been saying on the campaign. He did drive the message that he's been wanting to drive. I mean, at some level, those were the better things from his trip because they were consistent and, you know, with things he had said before and were, in fact, like a plan – that he signaled and then s- said something about, you know, I mean, I think it's the reaction from Europe that was – and the visuals that everybody sent out, like every – basically every foreign leader taking their own, you know, whack at him in some way. I, I enjoyed was- Emmanuel Macron's like vice grip handshake with him right. as a way to demonstrate like I am the alpha. <laughs> right. And when he released uh, the video of him not – going to shake his hand. I mean, there there was quite a bit in there. I mean, there was quite, everybody was really having a go at at some visual symbolism. Um, Meanwhile, Pew has done some multi-country work uh, on NATO, showing generally strong support for NATO across a variety of countries, Um, Spain being the one that maybe has the least support, but even their plurality uh, are favorable toward NATO. There are other countries, Poland, Netherlands, Germany, Canada, US, UK, France, they're not that much difference, ultimately, and a little bit more popular in these countries over time. They've been tracking this for a while. What I think is interesting, and I'm sure will not be a surprise to anybody who's listened to any episodes of The Pollsters, is that there's been a widening party divide in the U.S. Uh, and views toward NATO, with Democrats now having a very strong view toward NATO as, I guess, a response to Trump. Um, Trump doesn't like it, so I must like it. Exactly. Right. uh, You know, it used to be that there was no real difference between D's and R's uh, views toward NATO. Both were majority favorable for the most part with some few exceptions. Now you have Republicans kind of staying the same with just 47 percent saying they're favorable. Democrats are at 78 percent. Not only is there a widening divide um, in the U.S. uh, by party, it's the widest divide of a variety of countries between, you know, sort of liberals and conservatives. Well, and if you look at liberals and conservatives in other countries, so in the U.S., 
um, you wind up with conservatives liking NATO a lot less than liberals. But if you go to Spain, it's actually the political left that is less likely to like NATO. And I think this Spain story is interesting here. So, so one of the things that Pew has been doing that's really interesting is they have been tracking this on a country-by-country basis going back to 2009. And in their chart, you know, a lot of the countries have had upticks in support for NATO in the last year or so. France, UK, US, Germany, Canada, Poland, Netherlands. The only one where it stayed pretty flat has been Spain. Um, now, Spain has never been one of the top, top countries in terms of support for NATO, but they now really lag behind the rest of the countries. And I wonder how much that has to do with Spain's sort of relationship with institutions like the EU in general? I mean, you kind of have these countries like a Germany that is a big economic engine and that has had to sort of bear the burden of other countries that are in the euro having weaker economies, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece. And that's created this friction. And so I wonder if how much, I mean, the EU and NATO are not the same thing, but that a country like Spain that is on the Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece side of the equation opposite Germany, if if that if feelings about things like toward the EU is why Spain is the least excited about NATO, right. or is it just because they're the furthest from Russia in Europe? I don't know, but you know, if they have a, a different question in the same poll where they asked specifically about Russia, if Russia got into a serious military conflict with one of its neighboring countries that is our NATO ally, do you think our country should or should not use military force to defend that country? And Spain, there is not quite. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of middle the, of the pack, middle of the pack. So not quite as clearly at the bottom as as others. But folks who are familiar with Spain's political climate, feel free to tweet us that we'd love to learn a little bit more. Well, um, and what's what's really interesting, by the way, I'm just going back yeah. to this for a second, is that Germany on the question of do you like NATO or not? 67 percent of Germans say, yeah, they have a favorable view of NATO. And yet. A majority, 53%, say you should not defend a NATO ally if they're attacked by Russia. Yeah. So it's not just Donald Trump who's making people nervous about is he going to live up to – so Article 5 is – basically it says that if any member of NATO gets attacked, then everybody else is on board for defending them. And Donald Trump made headlines because he did not reaffirm America's commitment to Article 5. Um, the only country, by the way, I think that has ever invoked Article 5 has been the U.S. after September 11th. Right. So um, – but anyhow, I just think that's interesting that so many Germans support NATO but a majority do not seem to be on board with Article 5. And what's also interesting is that has the involved. narrowest gap, uh, at least from their breakout here, uh, is between the left and the right it was in Germany. So you have a lot more agreements across ideological lines, which is consistent with what you saw this week where Angela Merkel's opponent in her election stood with her to, you know, mm -hmm. contrast with Donald Trump. There's also a great photo of Angela Merkel with a big mug of Spaten, and it made me happy. <laughs> Sorry, I digress. <laughs> um, so the other big international agreement uh, and the subject of our song of the week is the Paris Agreement. Uh, this was one of those things where, you know, we talk about Ivanka periodically on the show. And the, the idea was that Trump would be influenced by Ivanka and would potentially take more progressive positions on things like birth control or on things like climate. And that has not really been turning out to be the case. Uh, perhaps Ivanka's influence over her father's policy positions 
was overstated. Um, so news breaking uh, today that it sounds like the Trump administration will be pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And when people are asked in polling if they think that's a good idea, um, we see that there is big party divides on things like climate change with a plurality of Republicans. When when you ask it in a three-pronged method where you say, is climate changing and it's because of human activity? Is it changing and it's not because of human activity? Or is the climate not changing? You find only 13 percent of Republicans say the climate's not changing. You find the bulk in that three-pronged question saying the climate is changing but not because of human activity. Now, I have found something different in the polling that I have done where if I ask it in a four-pronged way where people can say like climate's not changing, it's a total hoax. They can say climate's changing but mankind has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. They can say climate's changing and mankind has something to do with it. So like it allows you to say both that there are natural changes in the Earth's atmosphere and that mankind is pumping bad stuff into the air or that climate is changing and it is mostly or entirely because of human activity. And when you do the four-pronged questions, you find a lot of Republicans saying mankind does have some role. It's just not everything. Right. So if you give them more options, they'll move further up the – Mankind is playing a role ladder. Well, what's also interesting is the difference in question wording about what the U.S.'s role should be globally. So there is perhaps a little bit – I mean this is interesting. So they asked, do you think the U.S. is currently taking a global leadership role in trying to prevent climate change? This is from – this is uh, Huffington Post, YouGov, from earlier in the month. And um, – 72% of Democrats say no, not U.S. is not taking a leadership role, almost half of independents. But Republicans are not particularly likely to say that answer. The third say they're not sure what the U.S. is doing. Another third approximately said, you know, it is taking a leadership role. So fewer, just a little bit fewer say it's not taking a leadership role. Overall, Republicans are a little bit more evenly divided. A plurality of Republicans say the U.S. should not take a leadership role. So there are more – they are divided on whether or not the U.S. currently is. They're a little bit more likely to say the U.S. should not. Um, and then asked a third question. Well, the U.S. is one of 195 countries that signed onto the Paris Agreement, which is an agreement to reduce greenhouse gases. So you think the U.S. should stay or withdraw? There, a plurality of Republicans say it should – the U.S. should stay in the agreement. And you know what's interesting about that question? It doesn't mention the words climate change. It doesn't mention the words carbon. It just says reducing greenhouse gases. And so I've done a lot of research on this topic. And it doesn't surprise me that in all of the other questions where when you use the word climate change, like it sends Republicans into this very partisan place where whereas when you remove this idea of climate from the question and you're just talking about reducing greenhouse gases, suddenly you find this plurality saying like, oh, yeah. Let's stay in the agreement. Let's reduce greenhouse gases. Well, I think the other thing, too, is the other questions talk about the U.S. being a leader. Mm -hmm. And this says the U.S. is one of 195 countries. It doesn't say the U.S. is really required for other countries to stay in the agreement or, you know, it's going to be harder for other countries to agree to stay in, et cetera. Et cetera. It doesn't go into that. It just says the U.S. is one of 195. That's not a leadership role as this question's laid out. That is – you know, they're all in it together. That's an easier bar, I think, for folks than saying the U.S. is the leader. So anyway, Yale Climate, um, there's a Yale Climate Project, and they released a map, which is meaningless now, I see, in 
It's the grayscale. <laughs> well, I, I, I can see one thing on here that's a little bit interesting. So it's a map of uh, by county of what proportion of adults think global warming is happening. And I assume they've done some sort of modeling to figure this out rather than actually conducting a robust survey in each district. But sort of you can model out knowing what you know about each county in America demographically, what proportion do you estimate think global warming is happening? And you can see this like dense little dark line that goes from Washington up to Boston. Right. And then, <laughs> is the, that, hot, and then is, the hot area. Is that the Acela corridor? Yes. Yeah. And then you've got like really hot places in the middle of the desert. Uh, and that, that, that is pretty interesting. And there's a lot of fun stuff there. To, if you are interested in this topic, the Yale climate folks have all kinds of maps and things. And you can also go to Ariel Edwards Levy's map of words I think about. From, you know, This is a map of words that come to mind when I think of every state. And it had things like you know, big data and like avocado toast for California, things like that. So you should go check it out. Anyway, it's much funnier than I can describe from memory. But they also have another map that shows, um, if we had it in color, that a majority in every state think we should stay in the Paris Agreement. So it may be that on this, Trump is at odds even with his own party. Well, let's take a look uh, back across the pond um, at voters in the UK. The other big topic in polling is we have the UK election coming up Thursday, June 8th. So right around the corner. Um, the UK, uh, we have talked about a UK polling miss on this show before because the last election was not too long ago, right? It was in 2015. Yep. Yep. And so we had a whole big thing. Um, and in that election, conservatives outperformed their polls. Um and now we're headed into another general election and you've got uh, conservatives right now. The latest polling average has them 33.5 percent, labor at 30 percent, which this has been talked about for a while as like the conservatives are about to just destroy labor. And that doesn't look like conservatives are about to destroy labor from those numbers. No, they certainly don't. I mean they're narrowing pretty quickly. Um you know, it, it, when I see these numbers that are this close, I, I, you know, remember with Brexit, the numbers were, were very close and um, it, it wasn't really off in the same way as the as the 2015 election was. Um, but I think it's important to, you know, keep in mind that with numbers this close, it, it may it may be they could go either way. I know folks are going to be looking closely at the different types of methodology people are using. Doug Rivers from YouGov did a whole post to explain how they're looking at modeling. The thing to remember, which he highlights, and it's true with all uh, – I think with all UK polling, is that there isn't going to be individual level constituency or district has what we would call district polling. So if it's national polling, you're not able to fully model what the district by district results would be, which makes a difference in how accurate your poll is. Yeah, it would be sort of like taking a generic congressional ballot here in the U.S. and saying like, oh, look, Democrats are up by three in the generics, so they're going to have a slight majority in the House. And that's just not how it works. So it's it's kind of like that, right? Right, right, exactly. And um and also, there's just a lot of skepticism about polling generally in the UK. Ed Miliband even sent out a tweet, which we appreciate someone flagging for us, said, the pollsters have been off my Christmas card list since 2015, hashtag just saying. But I don't think he means the pollsters podcast, but he didn't respond. I would greatly enjoy an Ed Miliband Christmas card 
if for no other reason than just <laughs> can add, I, I've been cleaning out my office because Echelon, we're moving to some new office space, which I'm real excited about. Uh, going through and like finding old Christmas cards and things in in my box of stuff. And so to have a Christmas card from Ed Miliband. Ed, if you're listening. Yeah, we, we'd love to get back on your list. We would love to get back on your list. I mean, we've changed <laughs> addresses. We both moved. Maybe that's why we haven't gotten a yeah, Christmas card. Exactly. I don't know. Um, okay. So it's summer. It's too hot to sit outside. There's, it's too hot to talk about Trump for more than like 20 minutes of this no, show. Exactly. And there are some polling about what people are going to be doing. One thing is that we saw from Fandango about what movie people are most excited to see. It should be no surprise that it is Wonder Woman, which I am also pretty darn excited I to see. I am too. There are women-only screenings around the country, which I'm sorry. That's just like people are getting worked up about that. That just seems – I know people just – tweet whatever but that just seems like you've got to find something else to do <laughs> like, if that bothers you I just cannot take it um, if I didn't already have two different things to do on Friday night I would totally go to a woman only Wonder Woman screening that sounds so fun um, before all these other movies which I also don't want to see I also only want to see oh I do like Tom Hardy he's in whatever movie Tom Hardy's in I'll, I'm also interested in oh, seeing oh Tom Hardy's going to be in Dunkirk yeah, I don't at really a minimum, care. he's going to be in Dunkirk. Yeah, I don't care what it is, actually. <laughs> I don't know what Dunkirk is, but if it has Tom Hardy. Wait, you don't know what Dunkirk no, is? No. Oh, my gosh. This podcast is very quickly swerving into becoming <laughs> the, the weekly standard substandard podcast. If I explain to you what Dunkirk is, uh, it's going to be. Wait, but you, so Dunkirk is the evacu. It's World War II. It's the British troops getting evacuated back across the English Channel. Right, okay. And. They, like, don't have enough boats. So it's all oh, of these so, civilians. Okay, got bring it. Bo- yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So it. it's Christopher Nolan doing a war movie got it. Okay. about – and it's it, he shot it in IMAX, so it's going to look Got it. Okay. Ridiculous. All right. I get it now. I get it now. So, um, okay. So if I have – is the, the price I need to pay to see Tom Hardy is a One Direction person, I guess I'll have to – that's a price I'm willing to pay, I guess. Anyway, then Staycations, Wallet Hub. They sent us a pitch, a very topical, relevant pitch. Thank you, Wallet Hub, for not sending us something totally off topic. And Orlando was rated the best place in America to have a staycation. What do you think of that, Kristen? Um, I totally agree. I enjoy a good staycation in Orlando because whenever I go home to visit my parents, I'm rarely going out and like going to Disney World and stuff like that. So it winds up being – a vacation staycation. And it's always very delightful. Plenty of access to good chain restaurants. Um, plenty of like if you want to just go mini golf. I mean so it's not – you. It, it can Most be, public golf courses per capita they found. Yeah. I mean if you live in Orlando, you don't have to like go out of your way and drive – 50 miles to Most find a bunch of ice stuff cream and frozen yogurt shops per capita. Totally believe or that. Or in the top five. Golf, Froyo – um, Zoos and aquariums. Um, Orlando's, that's the place, huh? Yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely believe it. Um, so museums, not so much. Orlando's not where you come for museums. Um, no, they've got a lot of spas, though. A lot of spas. Uh, so, yeah, I, Orlando's a great city. Everyone should go visit. I love my hometown. I didn't like it when I was growing up there because I was like a snotty kid who was like, I can't wait to move out and go to some big northeastern city. And now I'm like, I really love Orlando. <laughs> I would like a blooming onion. <laughs> I would like a blooming onion, please. I don't want to um, 
insult any of these other cities because these are all like markets I've gone to for focus groups or have had clients run for office. So like I feel like, oh, like look at this city. They're on the list of, you know, least amount of blah blah the you know, fewest ice cream shops or fewer beer gar- beer gardens. But I'm just kind of amazed at how detailed this wallet hub survey is. If so. I had to think, what is my least favorite? What is my favorite city to do focus groups in and my least favorite city to do focus groups in? I love focus group trips when I go to San Diego, but it's always a nightmare because you land and then you have to moderate focus groups until like 9.30 local time and it feels like 12.30. And that is just brutal. Do not enjoy. Do not recommend. But I love San Diego. So if I say like San Diego is both my favorite and least favorite city to do focus groups in, it has nothing to do with the city itself and everything to do with jet lag. Yeah. No, agreed, agreed. Um, yeah, it just really depends on my mood and how, like, am I building other things around my trip? Is it a trip where one of my friends lives where I can, you know, see them for lunch or something? Um, you know, some cities I have a favorite store I like to go to when I go there, like in L.A. or San Francisco. I have, like, a favorite little, like, routine oh, yeah. of the places I like to go or Seattle. I am going to Orlando tomorrow to do focus groups, and I am going to take my colleague Jesse with me to the fabulous outlet mall that we have in Orlando. Oh. It is the only place I buy clothes. I have not – I mean, we've already discussed that's on the Sawgrass, show how I think right? it's – That's not Sawgrass. Sawgrass is South Florida. Okay. Um, no, this is uh, – it is – there. it's an outlet mall that's like right by Disney, and it is fabulous. And so Jesse is going to get to experience like me in my natural habitat. If I quit polling, I would go be a personal shopping consultant at outlet malls and mm. I would become a gardener. That's my new thing. Based on or like, a farmer. Based on like three weeks of pep. On of three weeks of growing like four pepper plants in my backyard, I'm like, yeah, I'm meant to be a landscape architect or a farmer. Agriculture. Well, well you should me. just, you Let's know, you it. could take those skills to Tacoma Park and <laughs> put you up against uh, all the hardcore gardeners in my neighborhood. When I say hardcore gardeners, Trust and believe. (laughs) (laughs) Serious business out there. All right. Um, Okay. So what we learned this week, the military, just like my grandpa, is pretty popular. Meanwhile, I guess impeachment is a thing we track now. Starve the beast. Voters aren't so sure. And if you had a European pen pal as a kid, maybe this is a good time to try and find them on Facebook and reach out. And that includes Ed Miliband. We'll send you a holiday card anytime. And whether you're in Orlando, D.C., or Yonkers, which was one of the cities on the list, kick back with a good Wonder Woman screening. You can find us on Twitter at, at the Pollsters, individually at, at Margie O'Meara and at Kay Soltis Anderson. Find us on Facebook where throughout the week we will post links to the stories that we find interesting. And make sure you visit us at www.thepolsters.com where we have our list of links to polling resources that we think are fantastic. Make sure that you tell your friends and leave a review. We always love to hear from you and we can't wait for the show for next week. Thanks. Bye. A Westwood One podcast production.